0: You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstone Lebanon PA. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area, Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. Ephesians chapter two. We're in a series that we are going through for the the summer. Uh, We're going to be going back and forth between reflecting on a couple verses in the book of Ephesians. And then in between we have different people talking about different relationships or different ministries. Last week, Sue gave a great message about the leader congregant dynamic, which was awesome. Next week, um, we're going to have AJ and Asia from True Life Ministry. They will be here to share about True Life a little bit and just as far as their heart for the city and the students that are in the city that the church n- needs to, one way or another, connect with. And so that's where we're at. We're in the book of Ephesians, thinking about God's revelation, thinking about God's kingdom. Uh, you know, in, in, uh, in Google... If you use Google, or any search engine probably, there's the auto-fill feature that happens. So if you start to write a sentence, it automatically thinks about what you might be thinking, or it thinks about what has everybody else searched for. And it starts to automatically fill those things in. So I typed in, now this has nothing to do with me. (laughs) Um, I typed in, is anything worth more than your blank? What do you think were some of the common things that showed up on the autofill list in general? Is anything worth more than blank or is anything more important than blank? What was one? Life, health, family. Did I hear somebody say money? Money, money and wealth. Uh, What was the, pet, no, that didn't make it. We got most of them. The other, one, the other ones were gold, <laughs> ego, and ironically, Google. Is anything worth more than Google? <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. Um, how does Jesus answer that question? Do you remember from the Gospels? Jesus is talking to his disciples about if you want to f- uh, follow me, you need to take up your cross and follow me if you want to gain your life. You need to lose your life. And then he asks this kind of rhetorical question, is anything worth more than your soul? Meaning your whole being, your, you know the, both the, the, the physical and in-physical part of you, like your, your being, your personhood. Is anything worth more than that? When somebody comes into the kingdom of God, like to go to, to Tim's point as far as makes a, that initial step. The scriptures say that there is so much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents than over 99 that didn't need to repent. And yet one thing we need to be aware of when we think about salvation is we need to not minimize it. A salvation of your soul that is disconnected from others and disconnected from the world around you is not a salvation that God is offering there's a bigger story that we're taking part of. So is the salvation of your soul important? Yeah. But there's bigger things that are also going on in how God is working and what God is doing. In the scripture, there's this tension about the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead and there's this new life and he ascended and he's ruling over all. And yet if we look at our present world, does it feel like Jesus is reigning and do we feel like things are always good? And do we feel like everybody's loving one another and everything else? No. And so in the scripture, there's this, um, um, you could pull from the scriptures this uh, theology called the already not yet theology about how the scriptures, specifically Paul, but other people too, in the scriptures talk about the reality of life about how Christ is above all things in this age and the age to come, and yet there's something more coming. And thank God there's something more coming, because this we're not completely home yet, right? And we feel that, but it's like, well, Jesus rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he has all authority and power. What's going on here? So one of the ways that the scriptures point to this kind of paradigm, and there's, different versions of this. I I stole this screenshot from the Bible Project because I like their graphics and the way they do. In the scriptures, there talks about this, this age that is now, this age that is filled with evil and sin, death, slavery, violence, and curse. And yet, when Jesus came, the kingdom of God was inaugurated, meaning that the kingdom of God was breaking through, through Jesus the Messiah, in a way that it did not happen before. Because uh, God coming in the flesh in Jesus was something unique and something marvelous and completely changed the course of history, at least from our aspect. This was always God's plan, but from our aspect, something's going on. And so there is this power, there is this justice and love, this freedom, this shalom, this peace, this blessing that the kingdom of God brings, and yet we feel that it's not fully here yet. We are being saved now in the moment and we are looking for the coming salvation to occur. And that will be consummated, that will be brought to completion when our King Jesus returns back. And so in the scripture, we hear things like, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, that we're being saved right now. That we're being saved right now. Then we have, since we have been made right, in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's wrath. A little bit of a present and a future that he's going to, he's going to, he hasn't already saved us, he's going to. So there's both the present salvation and the future salvation to come. And this is really wrapped up in Romans 8 for me, where it says this about suffering. It says this like, yes, Jesus rose from the grave, his kingdom is here, his spirit is here, And yet the full manifestation of that is also not here yet. Or it's hard to access that at all times. Like it's here, but to access that at all times is is not, um, the, the reality of new creation is still unfolding. It says, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed to us later, so in the future. For all of creation, not just us as individuals, But all of creation is waiting eagerly for the future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse because of sin, because of death, because of evil. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth up until the present time, and we believe, we believers also do what? We also groan. How many groanings were there this week from you about the state of the world? Whether it's something very small or just like huge things that you're like, how is this ever going to come to shalom? How is this ever going to come into peace? We believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit in us, because the kingdom of God is now, as a foretaste of the future glory. We have the Spirit now, and yet it's a foretaste of the future glory. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies, praise the Lord, he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved, going back to the past tense. So this salvation that God is working out, this new creation that God is working out has to do with the past, the present, and the future. And the Christian um, mindset, the Christian reality, the Christian vision helps us to see the world as it really is and both give us hope for the future, but not a hope for the future that just has us sitting on our hands now because we're also called as the people of God to enact his kingdom and to participate within it. We're not sitting on our hands, but we are participants in God's kingdom, and yet we're waiting for something greater, right? We look at the world, and we're like, if Jesus is resurrected, what's going on? Christ is victorious, and everything's in shambles. This tension that we feel, and sometimes in church you don't want to talk about, is real, and the Bible and the Spirit and the gospel speak to it. And it's also a point of hope where at the end of 1 Corinthians 5, when Paul is talking all about the resurrection of our bodies and the resurrection of come, he says, "Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And don't think about that just as uh, missions proper, or don't think about that as ministry proper. Think about that, the work in the Lord that you do in your day-to-day life with your family, with the community at your workplace. That, for the Christian, we do all things to the glory of God. It's not just uh, watching the kids or doing Cornerstone Cafe. Thank you, Cornerstone Cafe people. That was great. But it's more than that. (laughs) There's something bigger here. And so for the prayer, we've been doing this prayer and praxis um, stuff during the book of Ephesians and during the series uh, at times. The thing I would ask you to go to prayer, to go into your Prayer closet into your time as you're driving to work and talking with the Lord has to kind of do with this. Because Ephesians talks about the power of God is available now, and yet we don't always experience it. And don't take that as a shame thing, just take that as a reality. Like there is this power available. So the question is what can you bring to God where you need the power of Christ to strengthen your love towards another? Where do you need the power of God to strengthen your hope for the future? Where do you feel like that's just a lost cause? That that's never going to change. I'm not going to even hope in that because I don't want to be disappointed. Hello, cynic Justin. (laughs) Or where is there just somebody right now that you need the power of Christ in you to actually love that person in the way God wants you to love them? Where there's not a fear of man, nor is there a a judgment from you as being somebody that's better than them, but that you want to love them where they're at. So that's what I would ask for you to take to your prayer closet today. So that was from two weeks ago that I didn't get to talk about. Now let's get into Ephesians chapter 2. If you want to open your Bibles, uh, starting in verse 1. Paul is talking to the Ephesians. He's talking to the Ephesians who are Gentiles and saying how... Um, there's this new thing that God is bringing the Gentiles, which is us, those that were not part of Israel, and the covenant of Israel into God's household in a very new, distinct way, and this is how life is going to be from here on out. But he's speaking to the church, and as he's speaking to the church, one of the things he's doing is that he's reminding them of where they came from. I don't think any of us think we're evil. I don't know that, there's, there's probably a couple people in the world That actually think they're evil and that's like their MO. But I think the majority of us think that we're pretty good people. Or that I might have my issues, or I might uh, have my mishaps, or I might miss the mark, but um, as far as things go, I'm pretty good. And I think it's important to realize that kind of standard that maybe we project on ourselves and others because. Down in the deepest part of it, it's not what the scripture says. And part of what the scripture says about the reality of how sin has affected us and how we have chosen idolatry is both really disheartening and yet really good news because we have a God that comes after us regardless of that. So let's look at the first couple of verses of Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in the trespasses. And sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the spiritual powers of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, Paul is talking specifically to the Gentiles, but then what does he say here? Like the rest of mankind. This idea of wrath and how, like, uh, how does wrath work, it's not necessarily, in certain, in certain theological circles it's really popular to talk about wrath, and that's kind of like the only thing you talk about, and in other theological circles, you don't talk about it, we don't talk about it enough, because it's kind of one of those things that, well, God loves us, yeah, sure, What do you do about God's wrath and the reality of that? And how does the wrath of God play in with the love of God? I just want to read a a quick section to help us, like, reorient the idea of wrath in our minds a little bit. This is from a, a commentary on Ephesians that I've been reading. It says, God's wrath is not like human anger. It is not a bad temper so that he may fly off the handle at any moment. It is neither spite nor malice. Not hostility, not revenge. It is neither arbitrary since it is the divine reaction to one situation and to only one situation, namely evil. Therefore, it is entirely predictable and it is never subject to mood, to whim, or to impulse. Further, it is not an impersonal outworking of the morals of the universe. What is wrath, then? Wrath that judges and the grace that saves are both personal. They are the wrath and the grace of God. So the wrath of God is neither an arbitrary reaction, God flying off the handle, nor an impersonal process. It is God's personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil, his settled refusal to compromise with it, and his resolve instead to condemn it. Further, his wrath is not incompatible with his love. And I think it's important that we talk more about wrath and about where we came from because some of the motifs that are used in scripture, such as adoption, adoption doesn't really necessarily mean anything if we've always been children of God. There is this thing where we are children of God in the sense of that we are all created by God. We all bear his image. And yet the scriptures make a distinction at some times very poignantly about sons of the devil. Or sons of God. And how, even though this evil, this, this deadness, we have been enslaved, we are in this place of condemnedness because of sin and because of the choices we've made. And yet, God, what does He do? He adopts us as His children. In the Gospel of John, it says, Jesus came into the very world He created, but the world didn't recognize Him. He came to His own people, specifically there, meaning probably Israel, but also just humanity and even they rejected him but to all who believed in him and received him he gave the right to become children of god meaning that that being a child of god is not a default setting that once you're born in one sense that you're a child of god but in another sense it's that when you believe and receive that's kind of where we get the old school language have you received jesus in your heart that sometimes we can roll our eyes at or whatever And yet there's something very true about have you received who Jesus is as the person of the Messiah, as the Lord above lords. He says these people that believe and receive Jesus are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion but a birth that comes from God. And so we are children that are condemned, we are enslaved, and we are dead. And there's nothing we can do about it. But, and I, I've shared this before, and Dennis always typically rolls his eyes if he remembers it, Dan Durr used to say, God has a big butt, because of the fact that you read these things that are so um, real and so uh, heavy, and yet, in some sense, they reveal how much God loves us out of his self and out of his character. And so what does the next thing talk about? The next thing talks about God's mercy and love. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians. in Christ Jesus. And so there is this mercy and love that comes and transforms us. Barry mentioned, uh, used to be on our website long ago, uh, a quote that was from like different authors, Max Lucado and Lamott, and Barry reword this how you said it, but basically we as the church, or we as Cornerstone, want to love you where you're at, but we also want to love you so much that you're not gonna stay where you're at. That we're going to receive you in the circumstances that you're in and in the stuff that you're wrestling with. And yet God loves us so much that he doesn't keep us there. That one of the big things of the gospel is transformation, not just this contractual, I believe in Jesus, I've received in my heart, but this actual transformation as we are in, as Mike said, communion with God that happens. And this comes because of God's mercy and love. Where we were dead, we are now alive. Where we were enslaved, we have been raised up. And where we were condemned, we're actually seated in the heavenly realms with Jesus. With power and authority in some capacity in this present age, but also looking to the future that displays who God is and displays how, um, lo- how His love works so much in our lives. Now, Next, next verse, verse uh, 8. Is that right? Yeah. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is like one of the most famous lines in the scripture that we tend to gloss over or just tend to not think about. I want to do a a little bit more thinking about it in a a little bit different way. So first of all, uh, yes, this is my bunny costume, by the way, for uh, the picnic Uh, to raise money for uh, Amplify. So I asked everybody, if you read the email, to think about a gift that you really liked um, that you once received. So this is one of my favorite gifts. Uh, One of my actual favorite gifts currently is a video that Lana made for me for Father's Day. That was my favorite gift recently. But I thought that would embarrass her if I talked about it and put a slideshow up of her on it. So I didn't do that. Um, So this is one of my favorite gifts. This is a movie prop robe. Um, I'm not full-handedly endorsing the movie. Please don't come to me afterwards and talk about it. I can't believe you mentioned that movie. Um, does anybody know what movie this is from? That's right. So Brad Pitt wore this robe. Not really, but I like to think I look like Brad Pitt in this robe. And this was, Fight Club has been one of the most spiritually meaningful movies to me. And if you've seen the movie, you're like, Justin, you're crazy. That's fine. Um, but it talks about sonship on a very deep level and about what manhood is and is not. Uh, and the need for uh, femininity and masculinity to actually work together to provide freedom, stuff like that. Um, And this is one of the, this is the robe, and this is one of my favorite things that Naomi got me that years and years ago, and I didn't believe she even got it for me. It was just like, this is the Fight Club robe? Like, again, it wasn't like worn by Brad Pitt, but it was like the one in the, you know, they make, you know, thousands of them or whatever, but, and so it was just something, it was a great gift that I truly appreciated, and it surprised me too, because she knew who I was, she knew what I liked, what I wanted, and she got it for me. And I still have it to this day. I'm not really a robe guy, but I keep it around. I keep it around. And I also don't know where the belt is. The belt got lost some, some time ago. But this is one of my favorite gifts. Now, for each of us and everybody in our culture, we can tend to think of gifts in different ways. Or what makes a good gift? What makes a perfect gift? And one of the interesting things, I'm going to get a little geeky with you for a minute... That's come out in the past 10 years as far as like, are we actually asking when Paul talks about the gift of God, do we know what he meant by gift? Because we in our American, um, you know, 20th century way might think of a gift one way, but how did, how was Paul and the rest of scripture, the, the, the Greco-Romans, uh, the second temple of Judaism, how was that thinking about, about the gift? And then especially... Thinking about it with the idea of grace. And so I'm gonna put something up and I'll explain some of this. Some of these words might be like, that's not right. I just want you to think about it. Um so he says this about the gift of God regarding grace. He says to uh sorry, when I say he, this is from John Barclay. He's at Oxford New Testament Studies, he wrote a huge book. You can listen to a 40-minute video that summarizes it, that I, I recommend. He says, the grace of God is unconditioned, but it is not unconditional. The grace of God is unconditioned, but is not unconditional. One of the things he says that the grace of God that kicked against, um, if he looks at the whole of Scripture in the background, that kicked against the goad, so to speak, was the fact that in Greco-Roman culture, you didn't give a gift to somebody that was unworthy. You would never do that. Whereas for us, maybe as the first century, we're like, oh, well, a gift is always, a gift is always undeserved and unmerited. Like, that's what, part of what makes it a gift. And in that sense, it is true that the gift is unconditioned. The gift of God to us that is salvation, that is God's own presence with us, that is God himself, is unconditioned. There's nothing we can do to earn it. We were dead. How does a dead zombie-like thing earn the right to be in God's presence? It doesn't. And that's how the scripture talks about that we were dead, but because of God's love, there was this awakening, this quickening of this that is undeserved and unmerited. And a lot of us struggle with that because we want to make sure we get right with God and then he'll love us where we're at. We want to make sure that we get cleaned up, except what we end up doing is that we end up hiding our deepest sins to make us feel like we're cleaned up. And acceptable to God. Rather, it's out of his love and out of his mercy that he comes to us in the immeasurability of his, in the immeasurability of his love. However, he also says this, and, and this, like, is challenging to me, too, especially the word obligation. When you think of a gift, you usually think of obligation. Some of you might. Like, it depends on your—you might think of a bad gift as having obligation. One of the stories he tells is about in different cultures, you need to be careful on mission trips because if you go into a culture and you, somebody wants to give you a gift and you don't know what the actual culture of that gift is, you might be signing up for something that you don't realize you're signing up for. But a lot of the times we as Americans or maybe Western Protestant people usually think of a gift as not having anything in return. That's what makes it the gift. And there's just this question of what if it's not necessarily like that? Not that you can ever, now, please hear me, and this is what I had to wrestle with. In this being, unco- not being unconditional, he's not saying that you can ever repay God. He's not saying like, oh, well, now that you received the good gift, now you have to repay what he did to you. He's not saying that. But what he's saying is that there is some kind of uh, reciprocity. Everybody say reciprocity. 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 thank you. That's why I wanted people to say it, reciprocity. Everybody say Reciprocity which means that there is this reciprocal nature, completely asymmetrical, meaning like we can't repay God. You shouldn't be trying to do that because it's going to cause issues. But what does it mean? Well, let me read through a couple things. One, Scripture, the free gift of God is eternal life, Romans. Eternal life, according to John, is to know God and Jesus. If we claim to have eternal life but aren't in practical relationship through items such as prayer, word, fellowship, and confession of our need, why would we think we have eternal life? Michael Bird, another theologian that's kind of like working with this, he's saying grace does not necessarily establish bonds of contractual obligation, but covenant bonds of affection, whose Reciprocity arises precisely because it is not compulsory. The gospel creates new life that arises from the promise itself. So let me just make an easy sentence. What does God expect in return for the gift of grace? He expects relationship with us. He expects relationship with him. And that is what is eternal life, is to know him. So there's actually no way to even talk about like what we might used to say like fire insurance. I believe and I've received and so I'm going to heaven. There's a bigger picture than that. That's great. But again, why would we think that we have eternal life or working in that aspect of eternal life when we're not getting to know God more? And so sometimes we can receive the grace of God in vain like the scripture says when we're not actually trying to just be in communion to Mike's point again with who the father is and who with jesus is martin luther said when god works in us the will being changed and sweetly breathed on by the spirit of god desires and acts not from compulsion but in response from pure willingness inclination and accord so that it cannot be turned another way by anything contrary that this transformation that helps that happens within us we feel compelled and even overcome, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. When you think of grace and the good gift, just think about what is God desiring from you in giving this good gift, and let that sit with you. Maybe think about that a little more. We want to really be careful because it says it's not based off of works, right? It's not merited. It's not uh, deserving. And yet, there's something in there where. The Christian life isn't about some kind of contractual thing. It's about an ongoing wrestle and struggle with God and believing in Him and trusting in Him and having faith in Him. It says here that you have been saved through faith. So there is this mystery in receiving the gospel. You could hear about Jesus and His kingdom over and over again, and it doesn't take hold until when? Until it takes hold. (laughs) We are, as the scripture says, without excuse in receiving it, but also acknowledge the non-systematic way in which it works. You can't always pin it down. And I used to think one of the things I've been repenting from over the, over the past couple of years, there's only one, um, has been like, I came to faith when I was 18, um, and I've heard other people say, too, I've never heard the gospel until I w- it was later in life. And I've even used that language before. I, I, Probably, I actually don't think that's true. I actually think I heard the gospel and didn't respond to it. And so at one point, there was this mysterious thing that happened where I took hold of God taking hold of me. But it wasn't that I didn't hear the gospel. In our context, there are tribes and people that have never heard the gospel. um, And Americans that have never heard the gospel. But that for me, it was like there was just this moment where it kind of clicked. And there's this mystery to that. And so salvation is not um, systematic in that way. One theologian says, you become worthy of grace, in quotes, you become worthy of grace, when you see your need for grace and when you embrace the infinite value of the gracious one. And so there is this thing that we have to wrestle with that we're actually submitting to who Jesus is and see our, man, it's so hard to like put words to this, like, There's such immense value in every single person that is here being made in the image of God as a person regardless of where you're at, what you've done and yet we are so unworthy of the presence of God. There's both this value of humanity and this unworthiness. And I like the heart that comes out in Luke chapter 7. If you want to turn there quick, we're going to close with this. Luke chapter seven, Jesus is out and about and he comes to a Gentile's home. He comes to a centurion's um, area, not even his home. And I read this and I was just like, yeah, that's, that's the heart posture to some degree, at least to start. I feel like there's a lot missing in there, but. So uh, Luke chapter 17, verse seven. After he had finished with all his sayings, after Jesus had finished with all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick And at the point of death, who was highly valued by him, so there's a sense of worth there, whether that's a good worth or bad worth, meaning should you just uh, care about the worth of somebody because of their utility. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him the elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he, the centurion, is worthy to have you do this for him. Do you hear those words? Like, he's worthy. You should do this because he's worthy, because he's helped us. That's why you should do this. That's why you deserve to bring salvation in a small degree here and healing and everything else. That's what they're saying. He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, <laughs> and he is the one who builds for us our synagogue. Oh, man, I'm not going to get into that. And Jesus went with them. So he's walking to this Gentile um, Um, uh, Gentile centurion's house. When he is not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, and this was like, think of the centurion actually being there but not being there. He had a representative. It says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. And what does he say in contrast to what the Jewish leaders were saying? says, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, But say the word, and there's this faith aspect, like, I'm not worthy for you to even be under my roof, but I know that you can heal this person. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man who is set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, including the, I am not worthy for you to come into my house, He marveled at the centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Jesus did this healing without even being there. But don't miss the exchange of worth that's going on here. And there is something deep inside of us that um, needs to realize the state of then meaning like where we were before Christ or maybe even where we are now without Christ, that we are dead, that we are enslaved, and we are condemned. And yet, because of God's mercy and love, because of his grace, he makes us alive and he wants to be in relationship and communion with us. Not just this sign on the dotted line and you're good for the rest of your life stuff. Last thing, I'm four minutes over time. Do you see I got, a, I got a timer to try to track things? Look how big that is to tell me I'm over time. <laughs> oh, you will be using it, Barry. Um, uh, Ephesians, last, last verse here. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are not saved by works. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So then the final thing as far as uh, practice for this, I missed that slide. Uh, This is both prayer and practice, but when you wake up in the morning, I would suggest you ask God and then look for it. Ask God and then look for it. God, what is a good work you have prepared for me for today? What is a good work that you have prepared for me for today? Doesn't have to be you go out and Bring 20 people to the Lord. It can be an act of kindness towards your your wife, your husband. It could be uh, a a piece of uh, courage in you speaking out appropriately to something that's an injustice at work. It could be any of these things. What is the work you have for me that you have prepared for me, God? I receive your grace. I'm in communion with you because your love transforms me and I want to be in communion with you, even when I don't want to be in communion with you, I know I should be in communion with you. And then what good work do you have for me today? Let's pray. God, I pray that we will continually, every single one of us, wherever we're at in our faith journey, wherever we're at in knowing you, whether we are a younger brother running away from you, or we're an elder brother grumbling about the stuff that other people get, and the grace that you show to other people, I pray that as you take hold of us, we would take hold of you, God. We ask that um, uh, you would help sort through the nuance and the complexities of your kingdom, the already not that yet, the idea of grace being unmerited and undeserved, and yet your desire in giving us yourself is that you want to be in relationship with us. And we need to take that seriously to not receive the grace of God in vain. Thank you for your mercy and your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.